Our gospel this morning is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Has anyone heard this parable before? Yep, it's the warp and weft of the fabric of Christianity. The parable of the Good Samaritan is remarkably familiar. It was read to us from our own personal copies of my children's Bible. We have heard it so many times on Sundays as we have grown. And familiarity breeds more than contempt. It breeds assumptions and it breeds simple conclusions. If there's one thing we can be sure of, Jesus is never about simple conclusions or easy solutions. Jesus is about metanoia, a Greek word that means stop what you're doing, look at your life differently, leave your assumptions behind, look for new life and new ways of living. It will all seem so obvious once you have changed, once you have changed what you expect of life in people, in yourself. It's about love. The song we just sang speaks of the same, if I can find it. 360, was it 660? Is that right? No, I can't, okay. Um, help me the slow of heart to move by some clear winning word of love. It's, it's that simple. Even a word of love can change a life. But let's travel back to the scene of this gospel where Jesus is being questioned. Luke says, tested by a scholar of the biblical law. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you, sh you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Torah, the law, is this lawyer's code for living. He quotes, not one, but two Torah laws in his answer. The first in Deuteronomy, which we heard in our first reading just a few minutes ago. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and with your mind. To this he added, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's from the book of Leviticus, a book of laws. The man had learned the law well. He was surely a, a, an expert in sacred scripture and law. Jesus gave him the thumbs up and the lawyer could relax as he expected he'd be able to do. He thought he'd know the answer and he did. You could say that the law was this man's gospel. He knew the law, he breathed the law, he lived the law. The law didn't let him down. He didn't color outside the lines very often either. Jesus had blessed his answer. Whew, he said, I've earned eternal life. 
Law has come through again. It is right that the law is my gospel for living. Then when the lawyer asked, well, who is my neighbor? He may have expected the answer to be others for whom the law was also gospel. People of his social status, his degree of piety, his commitment to the law. People like Levites and priests and Pharisees, people as good as he was. He might have assumed that he was to love people just like himself as much as he loved God. That would not be easy, but at least loving others of his class made sense and it was worth the effort. And Jesus told him a story. He told a story that would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, as people like to say of deacons in their role in our church. Jesus had a much bigger goal for this familiar parable. The parable is actually about the kingdom of God. In Jesus' kingdom of God, the whole world is turned upside down. In Jesus' kingdom of God, the typically powerful people like the Levite and the priest and the lawyer and the Romans suddenly move from their expected position at first in line to the shocking position of last in line. People who were despised, like the Samaritan, or slaves, or lepers, or imperfect people, maybe even us, move to the head of the line of spiritual pilgrims, the people moving toward the kingdom of God through love. These were the people who flipped their plans and made the gospel their law. Jesus' listeners would have been flabbergasted at a huge surprise in this story. They would not have been surprised that some poor soul was beaten and left for dead. The road to Jericho was a tough hike of deserts and rocky places. It offered places from which robbers and thugs could ambush travelers and was well known for its dangers. Jericho was a substantial, thriving city, as was Jerusalem. Many people didn't travel at all. They farmed or they fished. They didn't have much reason to travel. But travelers from one well-heeled city to another would often be carrying money or valuable goods. Jesus' listeners would not have been surprised that a traveler was beaten and robbed. They wouldn't have been surprised that the priest and the Levite actually crossed the road to get away from the beaten victim in the gutter. He was unclean. Jews were expected to read and understand the laws of Torah almost to the proficiency of the lawyer. They knew that the priest and the Levite were bound by the purity laws. They were on their way to the temple, most likely, and could by no means break a purity law, heaven forbid. None of these things would surprise Jesus' audience, but they would have been stunned by the image of a merciful, loving Samaritan. Jews despised Samaritans. Samaritans were always the bad guy. Samaritans had the same God, but a whole different system to worship God, and the Jews thought of them as scum. It's difficult for us to grasp this level of hatred between two groups, 
millennia ago with differences that are obscure to us today. The reasons are obscure until we think about how some kinds of Christians think other kinds of Christians are not worth our time. And some kinds of Christian think other kinds of Christians are living in sin. We got some of that going on right now in different branches of our own churches. But listen to this. It might be difficult to envision the, how much the Jews despise the Samaritans. But listen, a man was going down from Fishers to Indy and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when she saw him, she passed by on the other side. So likewise, a politician, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But while traveling, a swastika-tattooed skinhead white supremacist with a tiki torch came near him. And when the swastika-tattooed skinhead white supremacist with a tiki torch saw him, the skinhead was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him in his own pickup truck brought him to a hospital, and watched over him. If we heard that story from Jesus, we would most likely say, you're kidding, right? How could I possibly love that? You notice that the lawyer answered the question of which of these three was the neighbor of the man who was beaten. When the lawyer answered, the one who showed mercy. Notice just as we might say, how could I possibly love that? He says, the one. He can't bring himself to say Samaritan because saying Samaritan would make the merciful person a human. So the, so the lawyer is part of the way to the kingdom, but he still has to hang on to some part of his bias. And probably his world in this instance with Jesus was turned down upside down once or twice or three times. And I wonder when he, what he thought two weeks after this encounter with Jesus. Would he continue to make the law his gospel? Or might he, like Jesus, begin to make the gospel his law? Douglas John Hall, the professor of religion at McGill University, once wrote, the late Kurt Vonnegut grasped the essence of Christianity when he was asked by an American from Pittsburgh, please tell me it will be okay, it will all be okay, which is perhaps the contemporary equivalent of asking for eternal life. Welcome to earth, young man. It's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. At the outside, Joe, You've got about a hundred years here. There's only one rule that I know of. Joe, you've got to be kind. Actually, Vonnegut said it a little differently, but I dropped the first word. What Vonnegut did not say, though one expects he knew it well enough, is that human kindness, when it's real, 
is only our own poor response to the kindness of the one who made us and tries hard to keep us human. For God's sake, Christian, you've got to be kind. Who knew that this beloved parable was revolutionary? Who knew it was to help us see that the law should not be our gospel, that the gospel should be our law? Who knew that law could be replaced by anything that draws us away from the gospel and our baptismal covenant? Money, when status is our gospel, when self-hatred is our gospel, when greed is our gospel, when separating myself from them is my gospel. I'm leaving my baptismal covenant and my Christian faith behind. In our baptismal covenant, we make the gospel our new law, celebrant. See how many people can do the response. Celebrant, will you seek and serve Christ in all persons loving your neighbor as yourself? I will with God's help. Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? I will with God's help. With such a rich foundation coupled with the grace of the body and blood of Christ, which we'll soon share, we can continue to live the gospel as our law and help one another to do the same. Louis Pasteur once wrote, one doesn't ask of one who suffers, what is your country and what is your religion? One merely says, you suffer, this is you to belong to me and I shall help you. I had stopped my sermon at that point as I was writing it, but how can we possibly look at the news for five minutes and not know what's happening at our border. And you might have all kinds of different opinions about the rightness or wrongness of the people being in the country. But what I think we have to acknowledge is that um, these folks um, don't deserve to suffer any more than we do. And um, anything that we can do to help would be beneficial. Now, we're not all getting on a bus and going to Texas. Some people do, and I'm proud of them. Um, but we can be kind to people around us every day, every way, whether we know them or not, particularly if we know them and we don't like them. And the other thing we can do is pray. I used to be, a, a, for a while I was a chaplain at Stanford um, University Medical Center, which I always called SUMAC. Um, but, uh, when I was going from room to room, one thing I noticed was people felt helpless and hopeless much of the time. And so I'd ask them to pray for the person on their left and the person on their right, the person up above them and a the person down below them. And interestingly enough, while I was there, Stanford did a study that showed that people who were prayed for actually did better in their recovery. A major medical university teaching hospital did that study and showed that prayer of any kind by people of any kind help the people in the hospital to recover more quickly. And we can do that. We can do that every day to pray for the poor souls down there, for the souls who are in prison, for the souls who are running the show.
we need to pray for them both, or them all. And that's a lot to do, but we can love one another. Thanks be to God.